0: Children and grow-ups alike know and understand the joy of being reunited with a loved one after a period of separation. And our children tend to be a little bit more exuberant than adults. And I remember many years ago when our children were small and I was traveling overseas a great deal, it was such a great joy to come home to the exuberance and the welcome Of our children. Adults also feel the same way, but uh, they kind of don't let it all hang like children do. And the reason I'm saying this is because Psalm 24 is a psalm of an emotional reunion and it is expressed in a childlike exuberance, not in a reserve of those who are uncertain of their faith, but of a childlike trust and confidence in the Lord. It is not surprising, you know, that Jesus often used a child as an example. It is not a surprise that Jesus often referred to a child's faith and a child's trust and, and a child's innocence and, and child's enthusiasm and none of the adult's cynicism. Let me put Psalm 24 in its historical context before I explain this uncontrollable exuberance of the psalmist in Psalm 24. The nation of Israel lost their ark of the covenant to the Philistines. The ark of the covenant for those of you who don't know, it's a box. It's a really very small box. That God told Moses, he said, you put the Ten Commandments, the two tablets in it, plus a jar of the manna and his staff. And to keep it in the middle of the people, in the tent where God will show up. It is an indication, it is a symbol of the presence of God in the midst of his people. It was a very significant object. It wasn't just any box, it was to them, God in the midst. It represented God's presence in their midst. It represented their national identity. It represented who they are. Without that box, they are nobody and they are nothing. So, I want to impress on your mind the importance of that box, the importance of that Ark of the Covenant. Because... For seven long months, the Philistines thought that if they can hijack the Ark of the Covenant and take it in their midst, that they can get the same power and the same strength of the presence of God in the midst of His people. How many churches and how many Christians try to practice Christianity without Jesus Christ? And they're surprised at the lack of power in their lives. For seven long months, the Philistines thought that they could rob the Israelites of the source of their power and usurp it to themselves, and it backfired. (laughs) Because the Ark of the Covenant, to them, it brought death, it brought pain, it brought a curse upon the Philistines. So they decided that it's too hot to handle, (laughs) and let's give it back to the Israelites. So, as the Ark of the Covenant comes in the midst again, and as they celebrate with thanksgiving to God for the return of this sacred object, David wrote Psalm 24 The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the sea and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and pure heart. Who does not lift his soul to an idol or swear by what is false? He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, ye ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift up your ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. King Jesus, we come to you in your name today. And we ask you that you will give us a fresh revelation of who you are. Father, I pray that any erroneous teaching of who you are be disappearing today. That, Father, everyone in this room will know the Lord Jesus as the victorious Lord in battle. That the resurrection power that is worked in him may work in us today, so that we may walk in victory. In conquering of our enemy, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, after the temple was built, and this is several years after David. David could not build the temple. God said to him, he said, your hands are too blooded in war. I'm going to let your son Solomon build the temple. So after the temple was built, the priests decided that there are certain Psalms belong to certain days. And in the temple, they would sing a certain psalm in a certain day. Let me give you some examples. On Wednesdays, that's every Wednesday of every week, they would sing Psalm 94. Then on Fridays, that is every Friday of every week, they would sing Psalm 93. And on the first day of the week, that's on Sundays, not the Sabbath, not the Jewish Sabbath, but the first day of the week, on Sundays, they would sing Psalm 24. Every Sunday in the temple they sung Psalm 24. Do you know what that means? Here's what it means. It means that when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem triumphantly on the day which we called Palm Sunday, the priests in the temple were singing the psalm. Isn't that great? It means that on the very day that the Lord Jesus Christ tore away the bars of death, and marched triumphantly out of the tomb. The temple choir was getting ready to sing Psalm 24. So you understand the power of this song. Let's look at it under three headings. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, you see the Lord's ownership of the universe. Secondly, verses 3 to 6, the Lord's offer is the ultimate. And thirdly... Verses 7 to 10, the Lord's overcoming is unavoidable. The Lord's ownership of the universe, look at verses 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, isn't the earth belong to Satan? Isn't the Bible call him the prince of the air? Doesn't the Bible call him the prince of this world? Well, hang in there with me, I'm going to explain it to you in a minute. Just keep your mind there. You see, the Lord's territorial claims is the ownership of all of the galaxies in the universe. The countless stars, the empires of space, the unfathomable orbits in which they move, they're all his. They belong to him. He owns it all. One planet In the midst of a hundred million galaxies is the Milky Way. Tens of billions of stars spinning around the center in a form of a giant disk. An enormous disk dotted stars. You've seen them in science books. A hundred thousand light years from rim to rim an inconceivable 600 million billion miles of stars. And they're all his. He owns it all. Some 30,000 light years from the center, from the disk of the stars, is a modest-sized planet which we call the sun. The sun spins around the hub of its universe, carrying with it a family of baby planets. Here's how you can imagine it. They are spinning around in these tangible stars, holding onto the sun like kids holding onto their mother's skirt. And that mama and her children make their orbit around the center of the galaxy once every 200 million years. They're all his. And then you find some teeny weenie brain professor somewhere says, I think there is no God. May God have mercy on him. One of those baby planets, holding under its mother's skirt, is called planet Earth. C.S. Lewis, by the way, calls it the silent planet. And the reason he calls it the silent planet, because he visualized... The stars and the galaxies and the planets making merry music as they scurry around the throne of God. Except for one that he calls a silent planet because it has no song. It is quarantined. It is a planet that is diseased. And it's a planet that is sick. And that's planet Earth. You know, others have called it, far from calling it the silent planet, others have said, you should call it the sobbing planet. Why call it the sobbing planet? Because it is filled with screams and cries of agony, of those unborn babies being butchered in the mother's womb. It is filled with violence and bloodshed. It is filled with sin and guilt. It is filled with sleepless nights and worry-filled mornings. But out of all these millions and millions and millions of planets, the Maker and the Creator of them all focuses on planet Earth. One planet. The Earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. (laughs) But why the Earth? Why the Earth? Why not Mars? Why not Mercury? Why not Venus? Why not Saturn? Why not Neptune? Why? Why the Earth that is a tiny speck? in relationship and in comparison to the size of the other planets. Why? Why the earth? I want to tell you why. Because nowhere else in the universe does God have need to reassert his claims. Long before Adam and Eve... Long before the Garden of Eden, long before the serpent in the Garden of Eden, long before creation, Lucifer, the angel of light, rebelled against the holy God. And he was thrown out of the heavens, and he wanted to take the earth for his domain. But he couldn't until Adam handed it to him on a platter. And God had to restate his authority over planet earth. God had to rescue planet earth from the foreign invaders of his property. And he did this on a hill called Calvary. The earth is the Lord's. No matter what the atheists say, the earth is the Lord's. No matter what the agnostics say, the earth is the Lord's. No matter what the people for the American way and the secular humanists say, the earth is the Lord's. No matter what some of the scientists say, the earth is the Lord's. No matter what the NEA say, the earth is the Lord's. He rescued it. He arrested it for his ownership. How many of you bought real estate? If you ever bought real estate, you know that you had to go through what they call a title search. Why do you have to do a title search in order to make sure that no one had a claim on that property from way back? And the reason you buy a title insurance is to protect your property from some past owner who come and said, I own this thing, and the guy who sold it to you is an imposter. Listen, it is in the same way that God came to earth 2,000 years ago. Why? In order that He may reclaim His title deed and throw the imposter out. The Lord's ownership of the universe. Secondly, the Lord's offer is the ultimate. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 24. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may? may stand in his holy place. Do you know what the real answer to that question is? No one. No one. Not you, not me, no one. (laughs) That's the real answer. That's the real answer to that question. No one is good enough to stand before God. No one is righteous enough to stand before God. No one is pure enough to stand before God. No one is clean enough to stand before God. In fact, in David's day, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and then it was once a year and for a very brief period of time. But here, through this prophecy, the Lord is issuing an all-inclusive invitation. The Lord is making the ultimate offer available to everyone. The Lord is giving an open door. The Lord is giving an opportunity for everyone. Who wants to come? Verse 4 and 5 says, Those who come, here are their qualifications. Before I tell you what the qualifications are, I want to tell you it is not once a year, and it's not for just a brief period of time, and certainly it is not in fear and terror, it is not in uncertainty and doubt, and surely it is not, y'all come, you hear? I didn't do it justice, but I'm getting there. (laughs) The qualifications for those who could come into the holy place The qualifications for those who will enter into the Holy of Holies, not only spiritually right here, but physically at the end of life. Here are the qualifications. Those who are justified before God. Those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those whose sins are forgiven and forgotten. Those whose outward life reflects their inward pure hearts. Those who have clean hands and their clean hands reflects their inward integrity. Those who have, who search not after the temporary and the shallow and the superficial. Those who love God and not the world. Those who live for God, not for the self. Those who set their hearts on things above where Christ is, not on things below. Those who have been sanctified because they've already been justified. That's the qualification of those who can come. You know what the problem with most Christians, modern day Christians, and I see it all over the world, not just the United States. Here's the problem with most Christians most of them really live in the Old Testament. You say, what do you mean by that? Let me explain it. In the Old Testament, as I already told you, the high priest is able to go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, and even then it was for a very brief period of time. And there he offers the sacrifice, animal sacrifice. And the blood of that animal only covers the sin's Of God's people for one year. And then they have to go through the whole reg morale one more time the next year all over again. And then the next year. And then the next year. And then the next year. Do you know why? Because the blood of bulls, the blood of animal sacrifice can only cover the sins for one year. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have come to him in humility and in brokenness, those who have asked for God's forgiveness, their sins are not merely covered for one year. Their sins have been blotted away. They have been cleansed forever. I want you to hear me right on this one. There is one thing that God cannot do, and that is remember the sin of the truly repentant sinner. He cannot remember the sins of those who have come to him through the Lord Jesus Christ and cried, Father, forgive me, because Jesus' death on the cross was for my payment of the penalty of my sin. But there was something else in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in order a person to be redeemed has to have a kinsman redeemer. Now, a kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament has to have two qualifications. Number one, he's got to be very wealthy in order to be able to pay the payment of redeeming someone. The second qualification is that he has to be related to the person who's being redeemed. A stranger cannot just walk in and says, "Okay, I'll give you the money." No, no, no. The money is only one part of it. The other part is that he has to be related. He's got to be a relative. Let me ask you a question. Who is richer than the Lord? Who's closer to us than the Lord? Why do you think Jesus said to all of his followers to call his father Daddy? Is he trying to be nice? Is he just trying to be equal um, employment opportunity? No. Is he making people feel good? now because we have to be blood relatives and we have to be beloved children in order that he may redeem us. And you can't get closer than a father. The Lord's ownership of the universe, the Lord's offer is the ultimate. Thirdly, The Lord's overcoming is unavoidable. Unavoidable. No matter what goes on in the world. There going to be a war in the Middle East. The Lord's going to overcome. Terrorists were running wild in Europe and the United States. Doesn't matter because the Lord will overcome. His overcoming is inevitable. Five times in the last three verses of Psalm 24, the Holy Spirit speaks of Christ as the King of glory. I want to tell you something. If that part of the psalm does not excite you, something wrong with you. Amen? The challenge goes out twice. Who is the king of glory? And then the answer comes in twice. The first answer, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Then the challenge comes in a second time. Who is the king of glory? And the answer comes in again. The Lord, almighty, he is the king of glory. You know what? I'm going to do something. I'm going to say something in a minute that is going to make some of you misunderstand me. But since that's nothing new anyway, I'm going to go ahead and do it. But just hear me out, okay? There are so many churches that are dead and dying throughout this land and throughout the world. There are so many lifeless Christians all over the world today. And the reason for this is because the real Christ is not the center of their lives. I stack my life on it. The real Christ is not the preoccupation of their minds and heart and soul. That is why they live lifeless life. We have been so brainwashed by the concept of the meek and lowly Jesus. That we have forgotten that he is the conquering Jesus. So many people confuse meekness with weakness. Yes, Jesus was meek, but he is not weak. And that's a false image of the victorious Jesus. It's a false image of the resurrected Jesus. It's a false image of the conquering Jesus. And the reason we have insipid churches and the reason we have insipid Christians and the reason we have insipid Christian life is because we have forgotten that our God is a God of power and might. That our God is the Lord of hosts. That our God is a conquering God. That our God has defeated Satan and sin. That our God defeated death and the grave. That our God has conquered sin and guilt. That our God has conquered hatred and bitterness. That our God has conquered fear of rejection. That our God has conquered worry and anxiety. Since I started, I might as well finish me right, please. The Church of Jesus Christ is not made for bake sales and bazaars. The Church of Jesus Christ is not made for candlelight suppers. The Church of Jesus Christ is not made for backslapping. It is not made for moping and soaking and complaining. The Church of Jesus Christ is made to conquer in His name. And the church that is not conquering is not the church of Jesus Christ. Listen, when you come to worship the sovereign conquering Lord, you need to remember that you are not here to worship because you're not the servant of a defeated, weakling, dead hero, but because you come to celebrate the living power of the conquering King, who is the King of glory, the Lord, mighty in battle. Doesn't say... The Lord wimpy in the struggle, Amen. mighty in battle, mighty in battle. In fact, between verses eight and nine, there are several centuries of this age of grace, this present time of grace. What does that mean? The first one took place when he was asked, Who is this King of glory? It was the day of his ascension when he rose victorious, spent 40 days after his resurrection, then he was ascended into heaven. That was the first question Who is the King of glory, the mighty in battle, Lord Jesus Christ, victorious? And right now, that's verse 8 right now, God is gathering all his children from all over the globe. From all over the world, he's gathering his children. From every tribe, from every nation, from all over the world, he's gathering his children. And you and I are to to be used of God as his instrument of getting his children home. The conquering Jesus right now is gathering his own. Those heaven-born and heaven-bound, he is gathering them. And soon and very soon... The dead in Christ shall rise. That's from our perspective because they've been dead. But from Christ's perspective, they're going to come back with him in glory in the clouds. And we're going to see them with him. Because to us, they are dead. But those in Christ are as living right now as they've never lived before. When the trumpet shall sound and the world will come to a standstill. Then we all shall look up in the sky. And all of the peoples of the earth shall see the believers moving upward, moving heavenward, faster than Superman ever dreamed of. Those who are on the highways, those who are in the air, those who are at work, those who are in prison for Jesus' sake, those in Africa, those in Asia, those in Americas, those in Europe, those in New Zealand, Australia, and the ends of the earth. They go, look up, and they see the believers go and say, look and see them go. And those who have rejected him, those who have rejected the conquering Jesus, will cry to no avail. They will call upon the name of the Lord, but no one will help them. They who have thought that God doesn't care what you believe or how you live. Those who have been misguided by church leaders that Jesus is not the only way, those sorrowful souls will tremble, and they will go to churches, but no one will be able to help them. They will seek after God, will not find Him. They will knock, no one will open. They will ask, but no one will answer. And as the conquering victorious Lord leads His own into heaven of heavens, again the question will be asked by the angels in heaven. Who is the King of glory? And He is going to point to all of His own. The multitudes of thousands upon thousands. Those who have been redeemed by His blood. He's going to point to them and says, The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. And at that point, we get the same triumphal entry into heaven as Jesus himself had on the day of his ascension. And so, shall we be with the Lord forever. Are you going to be with those who will ascend to his holy place? Are you? Are you among those who will be ascended to heaven? The very fact that you're here today or watching by television or listening by radio is the Lord's way of inviting you to come. Because God is saying to you right now, you can ascend into my holy hill. You can ascend into my holy heaven. But first, you must trust in my son Jesus to get you there. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you. I thank you from the bottom of my heart that back on that day when I said yes to you, when you opened my blind spiritual eyes and recognized what a miserable sinner without you and what an eternity in hell I'm going to spend and turn to you, you received me with open arms. Thank you that you gave me the gift of salvation. And I pray that you will give it to many today.